0: Hello everyone, this is Eilish Hart, the editor of The Beat newsletter and occasional host of The Naked Pravda, Medusa's English-language podcast, which you're listening to right now. For those of you who don't know, The Beat is a special email dispatch from Medusa covering Central and Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, and Central Asia. Featuring on-the-ground reporting and in-depth analysis, The Beat brings one feature story to your inbox every week. To subscribe, visit our website medusaio en or you can email beat at medusa.io, that's B E E T, like the vegetable, and we'd be happy to add you to our mailing list. For this week's podcast episode, I wanted to offer a sort of behind the scenes look at my work for The Beat. In early February, I wrote an article titled To the Victor Goes the Oil, which examined how the Hungarian government, under Prime Minister Viktor Orban, has worked to maintain good relations with Putin's Russia, despite the Kremlin's ongoing war against Hungary's neighbor, Ukraine. The experts I spoke to for that story had a lot of insight to share, more than I could work into a single article. So rather than keeping all of that knowledge to myself, I decided to turn our conversation into a podcast episode all about Russian influence in Hungary and how it's shaped the Orban government's response to the war in Ukraine.
1: I remember the first Russia-related story that I started to investigate was back in 2015, when a Hungarian diplomat based in Moscow was arrested in Hungary for uh, fraud, an unrelated issue to what the real problem with him was. And the real problem with him was that he was the agricultural attache to the Moscow embassy of, of Hungary. And he failed his national security screening twice because of his connections to both the Russian mob and also the FSB.
0: That's journalist Sabol Pani from Direct36, a nonprofit investigative outlet based in Budapest.
1: We uncovered that his girlfriend was essentially working for the FSB. And this guy, this diplomat named Silav Kish, he was basically pressuring and blackmailing the consular section at the embassy in Moscow, which started handing out visas, hundreds and uh, not just hundreds, I think, I believe at least 4,000 visas to criminal prostitutes and all kinds of people who were not really fit for the procedure. So he was connected to the Russian underworld. And of course, to be engaged in such practices, he also needed his connections with the Russian intelligence services. And he was also involved hosting high level Hungarian delegations that uh, traveled to Moscow for you know, official negotiations. And he brought these delegations to five-star hotels, to, to all kinds of parties where prostitutes showed up. And, um, well, essentially what could have happened is that some compromise, some video, some footage was, was recorded, in those parties. So this guy was essentially the the first subject of my investigative reporting, and then came many other interesting stories.
0: So to fast forward to today, could you clarify what exactly we mean when we talk about Russian influence in the context of Hungary? What are the specific sort of vectors or tools that we're referring to here?
1: Well, first of all, Hungary is relying on Russian energy to the extent that our political leadership just has to do everything to court the Russians and to ensure their goodwill. Hungary's dependency on natural gas uh, is not just high because of historic connections to to Russia and that some pipelines came through the country, but because consecutive governments and most recently the Orbán government that has been in power since 2010, Although they tried to diversify the energy supplies of the country, but uh, in the end, uh, they always opted for long-term gas contracts with Gazprom, which resulted in a situation where you know, not just Hungarian households, but the whole Hungary's economy is relying on energy supplies from Russia. And also our, our national oil company, which is quite profitable and actually making a huge profit is succeeding because it's buying uh, oil from Russia. So there's a, there's, there's also this, this financial economic tie, but the real story here, and and this is what we've been investigating with my colleagues is that all kinds of business deals, not just gas or oil, but also nuclear, or even the procurement of Metro cars in Budapest were all involving allegations of, of corruption meaning that the, the Hungarian government or Hungarian state-linked entities, they bought overpriced metro cars, for example, from, from Moscow, or the nuclear power plant that's being built in Hungary, which is financed by a Russian loan, involves subcontractors. And these subcontractors are the companies of, of Prime Minister Viktor Orban's childhood friend. So there's a clear trace how the money is being transferred from the Russian state to some private pockets that belong to people and the prime minister's inner circle. And of course, the, the other interesting part is that there's clearly increasing Russian intelligence activity going on in Hungary, which is not countered. Hungarian intelligence services, especially the civilian counterintelligence, is not doing a tremendous job in going after uh, Russian spies, so we've had a number of uh, spy cases, and and most of them were were revealed by journalists. But also some of these uh, uh, just became public because they were so serious. For example, one former MEP, a parliamentarian in Brussels, belonging to the far right Yobik party, turned out to be a Russian spy. His name is Vila Kovac, and his case was was widely covered in international press. So so this guy managed to turn. Historically anti Russian, anti Soviet far right party into being the, the most rabidly pro Russian. And he was caught, well, not caught in the act, but his dealings were uncovered. But in order not to anger the Kremlin, he was allowed to, to travel back to, to Moscow and he, he lives there happily. He's uh, analyzing the war in Ukraine at the university. And meanwhile, he's been sentenced to jail for espionage, but obviously he's not coming back to the country, so he won't spend a single day behind bars.
0: And so when, you know, journalists are uncovering these espionage cases, does the government address it at all? Like, do they try to put some kind of spin on it, or is it more like sweeping it under the rug or turning a blind eye?
1: In the case of of Bela Kovac that I mentioned, it's actually leaked in a pro-government newspaper. Because he belonged to an opposition party, a far-right opposition party that back in those days was seen as a rival to Prime Minister Viktor Orbán's Fidesz party, which back then used to be a moderate center-right party. And and of course, it it shifted since to this uh, pro-Russian populist nationalist direction. Usually what the Hungarian government does is that they just try not to engage with journalists. They don't reply to our questions and, and try not to talk about these controversial issues. For example, uh, I remember a couple of years ago when I interviewed the Hungarian foreign minister and I asked him about the case of Bela Kovacs, whether he raised it with the Russian ambassador or whether he raised it with Sergei Lavrov. He said that, no, I'm I'm not dealing with these issues. I'm only dealing with the the sunnier part of diplomacy. And I believe what he said. So the Hungarian government is trying not to confront Russia whenever some of their spies are, are being uncovered. I think so far, one of the most serious cases that we saw and that I uncovered was the hacking of the Hungarian foreign ministry, which has been going on since 2012 or 2013, I think that was the first uh, occasion. As far as I heard, when the Hungarian foreign ministry's internal networks, including a special network that's used to transmit classified information, were hacked, and then there were multiple other waves of, of successful campaigns by both the FSB and the GRU, I published my article last March that there's an ongoing hacking activity inside the Hungarian foreign ministry. And that had been going on since 2020 at least. And the Hungarian cybersecurity experts didn't manage to contain this compromise. And it was going on at least until last November, as far as I know. And probably the Russian hackers still can access some of the material transmitted by the Foreign ministry to, to embassies and back. And the Hungarian government just doesn't seem to care. So when I published this article first, the poor ministry denied everything. They said that these are just lies. And a couple of days later, when mm-hmm. Viktor Orban won His real action, and he, he held a press conference for international media. He surprised many, including myself, when he acknowledged the reporting was correct, but he claimed that the Hungarian state is able to defend itself. And when he was asked whether he raised this issue with Putin, he said that I'm not asking for the pity of anyone. I'm defending my territory. Those were his words. But I knew exactly that this is not what's happening because the Hungarian state apparatus was was unable to to contain the infiltration.
0: Viktor Orban's close relationship with Vladimir Putin has been under scrutiny for years. The two leaders last met in early February 2022, when Orban went to Moscow on what he described as a peace mission. During a press conference with Putin, Orban urged other Western countries to adopt a Hungarian model of relations with Russia, one supposedly based on mutual respect. Just a few weeks later, Moscow launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and according to the experts I spoke to, Orban and his government were shocked. Here's what political analyst Andras tost Sifra, a non-resident fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis and the Foreign Policy Research Institute, had to say about Budapest's response.
2: When the invasion actually started, for about a week or two, both the government and its media machinery were in a state of paralysis. That's what it looked like from the outside. And now we know from investigative reporting that there was a certain degree of uncertainty in Orbán's circles about whether or not this this should lead to a correction in Hungary's foreign policy course. And then the decision was taken that this is not necessary. And in fact, just weeks after the invasion started, they have very slowly started returning to the previous pro-Russia or shall we say, more understanding towards Russia course that the Hungarian politics had followed before February. And of course the media itself, Orbán's media, which encompasses both private media, most of which is owned by a big foundation and is centrally edited and the public broadcaster. They, so these, these media outlets never really stopped broadcasting pro-Russian viewpoint. And over the year, as Orban found a narrative that helped him spin the topic of the war, these media outlets have become more and more daring with their pro-Russian coverage. Orban himself to a different degree, of course, we're not talking about, you know, Orban, for instance, depicting Vladimir Volodymyr Zelensky as a Nazi, as some of the talking heads in fidesz the Media did. But Orban himself sort of ramped up his rhetoric, which was initially supportive of, of Western sanctions against Russia. And now it's almost openly hostile to them. In May or June, together with my brother, we made a website orban.media where we um, tried try to visualize choosing a random day what the war looked like from the perspective of a person who's consuming the content from these media outlets we were imitating an earlier project by the economist but it is genuinely ours and we try to try to pick regional newspapers public broadcaster commercial tv stations owned by Orban allies and so on. I invite people to look at that. I think it's still how many months, eight, nine months later, is still fairly accurate. The one thing is that the propaganda has probably gotten significantly more open, more in your face and more daring in its pro-Russian accents since then.
0: Shushana Weig, a visiting fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States and a lecturer and researcher at European University Viadrina, also said that Orban's government has taken a business-as-usual approach to its Russia policy, despite the fact that this has put Hungary at odds with its European partners. How has the Orban government's relationship with Moscow changed since Russia began its full-scale invasion of Ukraine last February? The Orban government
3: did everything it could to ensure that there are no major changes in its relations with Russia. It continued to prioritize both economic and energy relations with the country. And it generally just seeks to continue to conduct relations as business as usual. One of the key areas where we see this is, of course, energy, both in terms of energy import Regarding oil, gas, Hungary has been very adamant to advocate for even exemptions from EU sanctions that were to touch these areas, but also in expanding energy relations further, so especially regarding nuclear energy. There are two key components to the question, the continued supply of the PLOCK-1 power plant with nuclear fuel, which comes from Russian sources at the moment, and the second is the construction of the PLOCK-2 nuclear power plant with two reactors. In fact, we have seen quite some progress in terms of rolling out construction, much more in the past one year than, than before. So that's one thing. When it comes to Political and diplomatic ties, again, the government, the Hungarian government, sought not to harm them in any way. For example, we have seen that shortly after Russia's attack on Ukraine, regional partners were leaving the International Investment Bank, which is headquartered in in Budapest. No change in the Hungarian position. The IIB continues to be in Hungary. Before the Hungarian parliamentary elections last year, the news was aired that apparently there has been Russian infiltration going on for a very long time into the MFA's internal system, no apparent consequence. So the Hungarian government was very keen on preserving its high-level ties with Russia. And we also see that the messaging about the war in Ukraine is very much in line with the Russian narrative. So consequently, relations with Ukraine at an all-time low. of course, it's not unprecedented. Hungary has been blocking the rapprochement between NATO and Ukraine for several years by now due to concerns about the rights of the Hungarian minority in Ukraine, but ties obviously didn't improve. Since Russia's attack, or renewed attack, started on Ukraine last February, and the Hungarian government's rhetoric has reached an all-time low, essentially, comparing Ukraine to a failed state in the latest comments from Prime Minister Orbán. So obviously this does not go without consequence, and, and the Ukrainian party
0: is increasingly frustrated with Hungary. If we're going to try to dig down into why... Budapest has maintained this pro-Russian stance. What are the benefits? What's in it for Orban's government? And then what are the costs of maintaining this pro-Russian position?
3: To be honest, I see more costs than, than benefits certainly. So when thinking about benefits for the Hungarian government, maintaining good ties with Russia clearly seems to be a priority. And in that regard, this stance has been very beneficial for the political leadership and and preserving this type. But how it translates to to practical benefits, I think that's where the balance is really tilting towards costs. So we could argue that the Hungarian government stance resulted in the exemptions that Hungary received when it comes to the import of oil through but. This is something that could have been negotiated in a way more constructive manner as well. So in, in itself, I do not see this as a benefit. On the cost side, I think the list is much longer. So Hungary is by now clearly isolated with its position among its Western allies. It comes at really high political costs. It's not only that Hungary is damaging trust with partners, but also it tries to speak out from the alliance. And and this is something that in in such an extreme situation with lives online is a damage that's really hard to, to salvage. This attitude of the Hungarian government was clearly not Beneficial in terms of arguing for the improvement of minority rights for the Hungarian community in Transcarpathia. In fact, it can potentially harm that aspect as well. I think constructive attitude would have actually led to a more cooperative stance from the Kiev government towards this particular issue as well. Also, this has undermined relations with one of the closest allies of the Hungarian government, the Polish PIS-led government, and this will also be particularly problematic for the governing party as we are approaching elections for the European Parliament, where it's going to be much harder to build a
0: pan-European alliance that the government was hoping to put under roof with law and justice other countries that the border Ukraine and Central and Eastern Europe have gone all in on supporting Kiev and resistance against Russia. And for some of them, this has really been a boost for their image. It seems to have sort of improved relations with the EU, at least on sort of like a surface level, like for Poland, for example. Given the sorry state of Hungary's relationship with Brussels, why do you think the Orban government hasn't taken this opportunity to you know, at least pay a little bit more lip service to supporting Ukraine for the sake of improving relations?
3: There is a high level of dependency here that the Hungarian government maneuvered itself into. That's one thing. And it would be not impossible, but certainly very hard to backtrack now. Changing course would require major changes probably also in the government to to be able to really pull it off. Without that, at this point, I think the government cannot really change course. It would be an admittance of failure. And for a year, what we have been hearing consistently is that the sanctions don't work. The rhetoric was pretty much equating the role of Ukraine and Russia in this conflict as if we were to talk about two equal partners to the conflict when it comes to calling for peace negotiations, kind of omitting the fact that one is an aggressor. So I think by now it's really hard to backtrack. That's one thing. And the other thing is that the government has committed itself, and this is in part connected with the pet dependency, but not just in rhetorical terms, but also practical terms. So the Hungarian government very much committed itself to maintaining good ties with Russia and the costs of breaking with that could potentially be high. And it seems that this government is not going to take that risk. So the longer the government maintains its course, the harder it's going to be to correct it if we go back like a year ago, why it was taking this course to begin with, I would not exclude that the government misjudged the situation and did not expect that the war would go on so long that Ukraine would really hold on to defend itself and potentially expect that it's gonna be over sooner or it's going to be something that we have seen before in Crimea and in Donetsk and did not assess the costs and benefits. Uh, appropriately.
1: So many thought that when the war broke out and it was obvious that this is not something that can be blamed on the US or Ukraine, that Viktor Orban will finally be forced to change course. And after years and years of, of pro-Russian policies, he would finally just you know follow what, what the mainstream line was support Ukraine and at least rhetorically criticize Russia. Well, to some extent, he did some, some very basic condemnation of Russia, but Hungary became a, a staunch poser of any kind of military support to Ukraine. From day one, the Hungarian government emphasized that, uh, and this is uh, this is a really cynical slogan that Hungary wants peace, the Hungarian government wants peace. And because of that, they are not supplying any kind of military equipment to Ukraine. More than that, Hungary also refused any kind of uh, military transfers through its territory. So no weapon supplies can cross the Hungarian-Ukrainian border. And also the Hungarian government made news by opposing rhetorically most of the sanctions packages that the EU imposed on Russia. In the end, usually they they voted in favor of the sanctions, but they managed, for example, to negotiate an exemption for Hungary from the EU's oil embargo. So Hungary can still buy and will be able to buy in the future Russian oil. And this is something that even my sources working for the urban government don't understand to this day. The urban government managed to save Patriarch Kirill from a visa sanction and an asset freeze. And currently, I think the latest news was that the Hungarian government is trying to save at least nine oligarchs and relatives from the new sanctions. So these moves, these, uh, these tactics that the Hungarian government is, is trying to do these favors to the Russian side really shows to me, some desperation. And and this is actually what we mostly uncovered, that the Hungarian government is in reality frightened that the Russians would just cut off gas supplies. And in order to maintain their goodwill, they are trying to do these these favors to Russia. So far, we couldn't prove that the Russian state itself asked for these favors. Apart from the case of Patriarch Kirill, I personally spoke on the phone with one of the Russian Orthodox Church's secretaries here in Budapest, who who acknowledged to me that that they wrote a letter to the Hungarian government demanding help for Patriarch Kirill, which uh, of course was was the case, and the, and the Hungarian government acted and accepted this this request. And the other thing that we uncovered is that even in the in the last twenty four hours before the invasion of Ukraine. The Hungarian intelligence services were convinced that no full-scale invasion is imaginable. They were completely sure that Russia would not attack the Ukrainian capital. They thought that maybe in the eastern parts of Ukraine, there could be some military activity, but they were so sure that, that no real war will break out. And even after that, Viktor Orban's government and the prime minister himself, for some strange reasons, still blames the United States, which from, well, not from day one, but at least from November 2021, was pretty right in in warning about the immediate danger of a Russian invasion. The Hungarian government back then like essentially told both U.S. diplomats and diplomats of the United Kingdom that they don't believe that these warnings are based on facts. They don't believe that Vladimir Putin would invade Ukraine. And even after the invasion happened, Prime Minister Viktor Orban was busy blaming the United States of warmongering and and trying to drag NATO into a war. So his positions ever since did not change a bit. Hungary is just as pro-Kremlin as it was in in the last, I don't know, eight or seven years. In addition to Hungary,
0: Speaking out against sanctions against Russia and blocking arms transit through its territory for Ukraine, we've also seen Hungary blocking and delaying the release of aid packages for Ukraine. Will Budapest be able to continue leveraging its position in this way?
2: This is something that that Orbán has always been fairly open about, namely that his conditional support for the sanctions was dependent on the European Union doing something for in his first press conference after the April 2022 election, which, as you remember, his party won, scoring a, a another two thirds, constitutional supermajority in the parliament, so he was talking from a strong position. He raised this question not not so bluntly, not so not so openly, but he made it clear at that press conference that he wanted concessions from the from the European Union as regards the EU's own let's call them sanctions against Hungary, the withholding of the EU funds. Now, Orban was speaking from a position of power, I said, because his party had just won the elections. So his message was, I can take any spin on this that I want, that can cause you trouble, let's figure something out. But at the same time, he was also not talking from a position of strength because the war itself exposed Hungary's uh, economic weaknesses. Which later on, Orban tried to blame on sanctions against Russia, even though there is very little actual evidence supporting this. But through his media empire, he has, as I mentioned, gradually ramped up this narrative that it is not Hungary's energy policies, it's a unfavorable long-term gas contract, Gazprom, for instance, that caused Hungarian energy prices to skyrocket at the end of the year, and that caused the, the government to give up a utility price cap, which was a signature policy for Orban, but it was the sanctions. And um, the European Commission has held the line against Orban because I think they understood that Orban was not actually speaking from a position of power. And so at the beginning of 2023, we are still more or less where we were in the autumn in that Orbán's rhetoric condemning sanctions and even raising the specter of Hungary exiting the European Union. Again, this would be a fairly ludicrous thing to actually try right now, given the massive support for Hungary's EU membership among Hungarians. But just by raising this Orban is communicating that he can still sort of put more pressure on the European Commission. He's trying to throw everything on that. And I think the end of last year, when the European Union decided that it did not want to give in to Orban as regards the European Union's own rule of law procedures against Hungary, in exchange, Orban's support for various sanctions on Russia and various supports for Ukraine... It was a crucial point because Orban had in the past possessed a fairly good sense to figure out which battles he could fight and which battles could be won. And he had a pretty good sense of how far their opponents would go and what strengths they possessed. And I think in this particular case, he failed to appreciate the groundswell shift that has happened in the European Union over the past year. How sort of, uh, if I want to be very blunt, how annoyed everyone got with Orban's government trying to lessen the sanctions that were on the table and uh, threatening to veto them.
0: Is there any domestic pressure at this point for Orban's government to change its pro-Russian stance or to resolve the ongoing disputes with the EU? I would separate these two areas. I think when it comes to resolving
3: disputes with the EU, these primarily concern rule of law questions domestically. So these include the independence of the judiciary, media freedom and pluralism in Hungary, the state of civil society, levels of corruption in Hungary. So in these fields, absolutely there is domestic pressure. But I think ultimately it's the European Commission that really has a leverage here because the Hungarian government has a two thirds constitutional majority in the parliament. Even if it did not get 66% of the votes in the parliamentary election, there is pressure both from opposition parties and independent civil society. There has been pressure for long years to put an end to democratic backsliding in the country. When it comes to the pro-Russian stance, the democratic opposition has taken a clear stance condemning Russia and is not supportive of the government's positions, but already in the course of the election campaign last year, the government managed to dominate the narrative And essentially force the opposition parties into a very reactive position, claiming that if they were to come to power, they would drift Hungary into the war. And this kind of puts the opposition parties on a defensive course. So they are unable to really counter the narrative and they essentially try to deny what the government says about them. So there I don't see a really proactive stands there I think they have an easier time in formulating an alternative narrative when it comes to rule of law issues in a way when it comes to the war I kind of see the opposition a little bit like reacting the way they were reacting to governmental narratives around migration they are constantly just reacting and that is a shortcoming I think But ultimately, as long as the Hungarian government has the two-thirds majority in the parliament, and not just that, but actually in practice rules by decree under this state of danger due to the war in the neighboring country, which is a new special legal regime that was introduced by the government, it does not really feel that sort of pressure from the opposition.
2: When you're talking about political pressure... The opposition parties in Hungary are in a turmoil or have been since their election loss. And most of the dissatisfaction that has manifested since the election has been about domestic issues, not the war. So we have seen protests by teachers, by students. We have seen local protests about investments that are harmful to the local environment. conservationist protests. They're in a way pretty... uh, similar to some of the conservationist protests that we have seen in Russia over the past couple of years. But these have not been translated into something much bigger. They they sort of irked the government, but there is no tangible opposition force that could have capitalized on these protests so far. And there's no real opposition force that would have seen its popularity skyrocket over the cost of living crisis that reached Hungarians in the second half of the last year. If you remember, food inflation was by far the largest in Hungary within the EU, that is, at the end of last year. And this was to a large extent due to the, the government's own policies, its own choices. There was a fuel shortage in Hungary briefly because of the fuel price cap that Orban's government mm-hmm. set up after the election. So these issues are there and these issues certainly seem to bother people. However, neither in the opposition nor in the governing party, apart from a loud disagreement between the head of the central bank and Orban's government, which you know could have just been driven by personal animosities, apart from that, we haven't really seen anything that I think could endanger Orban's positions in any way. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda. Thanks for tuning in. And thank you for supporting our work at Medusa and for letting people know about it. Please put out the word. Until next week.